0: Preparing to Delve in 3, 2, 1. Hello everybody and welcome to Delve. My name is Nathan. And I'm Alex. And uh, Alex, uh, I wanted to tell you something that uh, happened on Friday, something that I'm very excited about. Do you know what happened Friday?
1: Uh, there was a full moon, it was Friday the 13th. I assume Jason Voorhees killed a lot of lakegoers. Those are all probably true.
0: Uh, cannot confirm, cannot deny.
1: I mean, you can confirm it was the 13th and a full moon.
0: I can confirm that those things were real. But actually, the thing I was talking about is something that I'm probably more excited about than than you. But, uh, Borderlands 3 came out. Oh boy. But something interesting happened when that game released, uh, the early reviews we're talking about uh, how the big problem that they seem to have was with Borderlands 3 feeling just like more Borderlands, and that that feels a little bit uh, stale. But I thought that the commentary of a game having the problem of being too much like other games in its series was interesting enough that I wanted to discuss it with other games, both digital and analog, so both tabletop and video. Like, I guess the best way I can put it is, you want to innovate, but you don't want to alienate. So you want to keep building something that's new and fresh, but you also don't want to end up alienating the audience that uh, already likes the thing that you have created.
1: Right, you don't want to walk so far away from what you got people into the series that they're no longer interested. Like, you don't want to be like, cool, so it started out as playing Portal, and now you're actually just doing, like actual puzzles with puzzle pieces. Yeah,
0: now we have with a gravity gun. We've gone from the physics-based puzzle to literally shell sits down at a table and starts doing a Sudoku. Congratulations. <laughs> we've we've messed up the game. <laughs> no, there are no portals in the Sudoku. I thought about that and I thought about how you know, traditional board games uh like a like a Monopoly or a Pandemic or anything that we're used to, Carcassonne is another good example have a lot of different variations, but their basic mechanics are pretty much always the same. They just kind of twist it or change it a little bit. Mostly it's the board and the map that that changes a little bit, or how it's themed. Uh, but those aren't necessarily direct sequels to anything. They're not like another step, they're just like a, a kind of like a sidestep, <laughs> more than anything. But in terms of at least uh, tabletop games, uh, the thing that I kept thinking about was, if you look at role-playing games specifically, this is really where that whole tension between being able to create something new but not lose your audience seems to be the most prevalent. Because you sometimes have to change the entire system around.
1: Sometimes. You at least tweak it and streamline it and make it work right. You refine it. You don't necessarily change it. Entirely. Because if you're gonna
0: if you're gonna change the entire system around, you might as well just make a new game. Well, then you also have brand recognition though. Sometimes that's also a big factor. But if you were looking at a, a system like when we were talking about Savage Worlds, that's actually one that literally just is the same system and they just keep um innovating on top of it. But the same basic system just keeps getting more and more mechanics laid on. But if you are a, let's say, a Pathfinder or a Dungeons & Dragons, then the system can completely change between and one version and another. It doesn't change enough to be a different system. Okay, well that's interesting. So what what really is the core of saying that it's the system? Because there's a, a wide difference between, like, Thacko and AC. <laughs> They're both technically Dungeons and Dragons from two different versions, but what is the real core of what you would say is is D and D? D and D is the D twenty system. Okay, so as long as you have the dice, but but there are other systems that use D twenties too. Yes, but okay. the core of D and D is the D twenty system.
1: Your your attributes uh, uh, adding to the skills they add to, and your characters, classes, and abilities. So those mechanics really make up your core system. But okay. say armor class versus, you know, Thacko, that's Ooh. a subsystem they changed within it, but it didn't change any of the core mechanics, it just changed how those core mechanics actually balance out and work.
0: Uh, Because the, throughout this entire time, they have changed things like what classes you can be, um, what races you can be, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, yeah, but that's
1: not the core system, not the core mechanics. That's,
0: you know, in, in the player's
1: handbook, there's only so many races so many classes and yeah. then they go ahead and they go here's some extra stuff here are some more classes here's mm-hmm. some more variants on the classes here are some more races and more variants of races
0: right so they don't right.
1: change how the game is played they change
0: your options for playing the game though i see okay so if i were looking at like my d20 i got my d20 in front of me right now okay oh, like this and all the support mechanics that are around that like skill check stuff like that that's all still indicative of D&D, regardless of what version I was looking at.
1: Yeah, essentially. I mean, if the in an earlier version didn't have it specifically, like, say, advantage and disadvantage were not around in 3.5. Right. Those are newer right. mechanics that they added for balance, I believe. Right. And they add, they add variety, but they also help balance things out, so that instead of saying, oh, you can't do it, or you, you take this, they overhauled the entire skill system So now you can get advantage on a skill check instead of being like, yeah, I've got 15 points into sneak.
0: Yeah, the the skill system was also something that uh, I know has gotten changed and modified over the course of time. But the idea that you have skills, since that's kind of like the basic concept that your skills derive from your basic stats, and that's all still pretty much standard, because I don't remember much from...
1: Pretty much. I
0: mean... At the core,
1: most RPGs are like if they've got sequels, the core systems are going to be similar but with tweaks. I know for like L5R Mm -hmm. from first edition to second edition, they tweaked things. They kept the same system pretty much, but they tweaked things. Same thing with like World of Darkness Mm
0: -hmm. or with
1: um, the Warhammer 40k RPGs. They tweak it from like Dark Air Seed first and set to second edition. They take it and they go. Alright, where are things not working well? Where do we need to balance it? And they, they'll they tweak those things. What, what ends up happening with tabletop games, RPGs specifically, uh, in their sequels, in the games from the first iteration to uh, later iterations, is they tend to streamline things out. I'm not going to say ever, but they don't, I think, typically
0: get crunchier as they sequel out. It doesn't seem to be that. It feels like they tried to streamline things so that the mechanics are out of the way more than anything else.
1: Right. And I think that's the thing. First editions to games you'll find are often very clunky and crunchy because it's you're getting all these ideas out into a game. You get the game and it's playable and and you see it and you are like, all right, cool. So this is playable and it's the way we want it to be. And you get people playing it and you find out what works and what's kind of annoying to do and what's not useful. And then yeah. you kind of go, all right, so this isn't really necessary. This is overbearing, et etc. Et this takes too much time. Yeah, That's one of those things with like an opposed roll system in theory sounds great because you can roll against your opponent.
0: Uh-huh. But
1: in practice, it yeah. ends up bogging down everything with extra dice rolls. Sort of like a um, a location-based hit system. Again, in yeah. theory, sounds awesome. But in practice, it bogs down time. It takes a lot more to do everything.
0: There have been some uh, games that their downfall was that they made things way too complicated. <laughs> right. And, um, and usually in, like, war games more than RPGs, but, uh, yeah, where you're trying to determine the trajectory of bullets and stuff like that, where it's like, okay, we're getting a little too deep in the weeds. It's not fun. It's not streamlined. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of people would say that compared to earlier versions of D&D, 5e is definitely more of a streamlined system, especially for I, new players.
1: 5e is a really... Um, nice in that regard because it is really friendly to new players
0: but now on the other hand though i had like i was playing with someone who's used to uh, older versions of, of the game too one thing that she wasn't real fond of in 5e Was that you don't really get to, like, your skills are all basically based on, like, your class and everything like that. You don't really get a lot of options to customize your skill levels like you did in previous games. Like, being able to add specifically to those. And I get that. Yeah, I can see where somebody might say that that feels a little bit alienating if you're used to stuff like that in earlier versions. Which which also kind of leads me back to that idea of how you maintain uh, a certain identity without risking it down the road, but but still trying to create something new. I would say, too, with like D&D and even with, with some of the other ones, like Pathfinder, Warhammer, uh, and all those, is your setting, uh, even though they've, they've changed and they've modified settings over the years and they've created new ones, is that it does kind of have a thematic quality to it that has helped create an identity. Like, Faerun is sort of indicative of that. Forgotten Realms is indicative of D&D. Um, well, on
1: the flip side, you also have a game like Magic the Gathering. Mm-hmm. Which, at its core, has always been essentially the exact same game. They have different formats for playing the game, so you have different rule sets to abide by for your decks and what's legal. Yes. But at the core... The game is played the same way. The difference is with them, they don't have they don't have sequel games. They have expansions essentially. Every yes. new set. Yep. And yep. the thing there is, they don't really streamline and cut back old mechanics or whatever, phase them out. They still are legal if you're playing a game uh, type format that you can use those cards and they have that ability. Mm. That's it's never gone away. That right. like flanking. If, yeah. You know phasing, for instance it uh-huh. it's never gone away. You can still play the phasing cards. They're not mm-hmm. suddenly no longer viable at all ever right. i mean if they were ever viable, but <laughs> yeah, whether they were useful in the first place <laughs> the difference is yeah. with like uh from d and d where they go, all right, new edition, new rules, all the old rules are now superseded. This is a completely right different version of the game. Magic, on the other hand goes, yeah, no, everything that happened before is still canon right. Yeah, that's all fine. Yeah. But here are new mechanics, new abilities, new things we're adding to it to spice it up and make it different. Right. And that's where you get into the point of there are so many mechanics that it can be overbearing for some people.
0: But you yes. can also
1: go into the uh, part where it becomes alienating. That's why I stopped playing Magic, because the new abilities that were coming in to the game at the time when I was getting out of it were like indestructible.
0: Okay, yeah. And I was like, yeah. this
1: is just... it. Just Some of the new stuff they added just alienated me.
0: I'm like, I don't like that. I will say, though, that if, if you think about it, um, Magic, at least when it was created, did something really smart. A lot of the game and how the game plays is done on the individual cards. The actual rule set itself is so very light, so if you want to create totally change the game, you don't have to undercut the basic ideas that are out there. Right. Like, I, I put down a land so now I can use it to tap and then I can put out cards based on what kind of mana that I have available. Those are the core rules. That, that's basically the core of Magic. That's basically yes. everything. Everything else, everything else that's rules in that game revolves around what happens to be on the cards. Yes. So if you want to change a lot of mechanics or you want to implement stuff, You don't have to throw out what you had before. You don't have to undercut what the game was. It basically said that at the front. All the cards themselves basically change that, depending on what comes out into play. And you know, that's actually a good analogy
1: for how different classes and, like, we're going to switch gears now, Mm. in a game like World of Warcraft, see, the core game is the same core game for everybody. But your different classes augment how you interact with the game. Your different abilities and spells and what you can use for weapons and armor. They are what augment your rule set. Mm -hmm. So you're all playing by the same core rules, but suddenly, you being an elf warrior versus a orc rogue, you're playing with two different rule sets in the same core
0: mechanics. Right, right. Yeah, and that that can be kind of tricky too, considering that that game's been around for so long, we're at like fifteen years now, uh, uh-huh. to try and keep it uh, so that it it feels fresh, but it doesn't feel like it's alienating to players.
1: And you know that's something they've had to deal with as well. And this is why this topic is really good for tabletop and video games, oh, yeah. because you know we we talked about it a little bit before Dead Space, for instance, they just kind of. They went yeah. so far away from what the original concept of the game was that it yeah. stopped being what the game was.
0: Yeah, and I mean, we could talk a little bit, too, about some bad examples of of this. Because, yeah, what Visceral did with the original Dead Space was they created sort of like a, a space horror game. And people really liked that. And whether it was due to, like, studio pressure or whatever, the later titles went further and further into... Really an action-adventure shooter. It's kind of a gritty action game. It, yeah, it, it was much more focused on the action part and far less on the horror part. So if you were really interested in the atmosphere and what it was building in that first game, you would feel kind of disappointed. I can say that I've played them all, <laughs> uh, so I, I'm familiar with this system. Not a ton of Dead Space 2, I have to say, but I played a fair amount of one, and I finished three. Um, I actually, for me, a, a reduction of the horror and more onto the action elements was nice for me. <laughs> I liked that myself. Oh well, so, that's good then. So three actually ends up lending itself a little bit more to my play style, but I understand why if you liked that tight, those tight corridors and that you know limited ammunition and everything that you had in the first game. And how that really made you think about the world and, and you know, that there's, there's stuff coming for you around every corner with the Necromorphs. You'd be a very disappointed in 3 when there's ammo everywhere and you're flying around shooting things like it's going out of style.
1: Right. It's the difference between what makes an action shooter in a game like Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. Where in late yes. RE4, you couldn't walk and use your gun at the same time. No. And there was very... You had to, you know, budget your ammunition because you Mm -hmm. couldn't just pick it up everywhere. Yeah. And that's that's the difference between an action game and a horror game right there, too. Right. Because if you go from this to that, then it's like, all right, well, you just lost everything that made this game so much more
0: thought-provoking for you. Right. And Resident Evil is a good example of that, too, because... You'll remember the early games, they had kind of the limitation of having those singular static camera angles, you know, going around. This 4 was the first time where you actually had the the behind-the-back camera on Leon. But then they took that 4, and then they made Resident Evil 5. And then that became much more of an action game.
1: And again, that's where a lot of the fan base goes for the best. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they do. They like 4 is the best uh Resident Evil game and they I mm-hmm. think they just did the HD remake for it, yeah.
0: Oh, probably. I think they've remade that several times now. Like they they had 5, then they had 6, which was like they basically just threw all of the different characters into different vignettes and stuff. That was that seemed like too much of a hodgepodge for me to get into. Um but then the one that they came back with recently was Resident Evil 7. And that's again, another one where it feels like they were going returning to form and they made like a claustrophobic environment with this house where there are enemies that you don't think you can kill at all (laughs) and and that became something that people really loved people really liked that because it went back to the emphasis kind of like the feeling of the earlier games right and actually when they just went back and did like uh the big thing everyone was on was resident 2 remake they did a resident evil 2 Remake so that it's no longer the static camera angles. It's it's more like Resident Evil 4, and people really loved that. They didn't think that it would necessarily work because they've changed the whole game completely from perspective, from how it interacts. But it feels more like Resident Evil 4 in yeah. how it interacts, and people actually really really liked that return, which is probably the reason why they're going back and doing. <laughs> But like, like, hey, let's take one of our best games and let's see if we can take the old games and make them like that. Let's do that. That makes me wonder what's going to happen
1: with the uh, Final Fantasy VII remake.
0: Yeah, because that looks like it's functioning a lot more like fifteen. How it that looks more, more like action. an action game, whereas fifteen was an action was more action. I believe again. seven was just a turn-based game. Yep. Yeah, seven was a turn-based game. Even, even Final Fantasy ten. Yeah, you know the camera would follow you,
1: but there are certain points in it where you had a fixed angle camera, and you could move yeah. around the map area, but it was just a fixed angled camera.
0: Yeah, and then they they did change that up in several different iterations. That's actually an interesting series in itself because if you think about it, Final Fantasy takes place in such disparate places with such disparate stories, yet they can keep an identity that that makes it uniquely Final Fantasy. I think the identity is that none of the games are are
1: sequential.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but you say that, but then there was like there was X two, and then there were actually three games for Final Fantasy thirteen.
1: Yeah, and then seven had a couple sub games after it, like that weren't true to form.
0: Right, we don't talk about Ten (laughs) Two. You don't. People like Ten Two. I thought people yeah. hated 10-2. No, I think a, a lot of people actually liked Ten Two, uh, and as, ironically, I liked Thirteen Two more than Thirteen, but not Lightning Returns. But Thirteen Two was interesting. Some reason that's that's time flippy stuff that they were doing in that one. That was a uh, that was interesting. It was innovative, but it but you do assume like we've talked about that on the show is that like there's going to be a character named Sid. There are going to be Chocobos. There are going to be Cactuars. That that are run gonna be the, your, your BC are going to be more or less the same. They're completely different stories that don't seem to be correlated at all. But your your characters, like your characters, are always going to be spiky haired heroes that, that have to save the world from a god. Basically. They're going to be teenagers. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be spiky haired teenagers that have a destiny to save the world from a god. So we kind of have that <laughs> that down, uh, and that there's going to be some uh, monsters that are going to look very similar from game to game. I feel um, like it, we need to do
1: a trope now. We're on a, D- a D&D game or RPG where you're spiky-haired teenagers. With oh, the, yeah. Where you're just... Star- no, not, not Rift Hunters.
0: Um, No, not Rift Hunters. <laughs> something completely <laughs> where different. Where you're spiky-haired teenagers and you need mm-hmm. to kill God. Yeah. A God. Yeah. Maybe a couple gods. Me, I'm just Ash Ketchum. I'm just Ash Ketchum. Yeah, you finally
1: um, became a Pokemon League Master.
0: Yeah, I know. Thank- Congratulations, Ash Ketchum. And you know, actually, that does get me thinking about Pokemon, because if you're thinking about uh, games that have been able to hold on to an identity while con- continually changing the way the game kind of plays huh. and sometimes drastically, sometimes drastically, it's Pokemon, and it's not always for the best. No,
1: but it's not. <laughs> no. Um but they do. You're right. It's it's canonically the game is very much the game. You can tell it's the same game. You can tell they're different because each one is a different story being told. You're right; they do change certain mechanics or added each game. They add new things, or at least they tr- they try new things. Uh, and I love that one thing about Nintendo is they're afraid to innovate, but but they do. They stay from first gen, the second gen. I think they added um, held items. And third, they added the berries, and then they added even more stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then shinies and whatnot.
0: They've added things every single time. And they don't generally take away a lot. Those additions are usually fairly light. Like, they don't get super into changing up the overall mechanics. Like, you still battle Pokemon. Well, until recently, anyways. Right.
1: Until Pokemon Go came out and then Sword and Shield. Yeah. Not Sword and Shield. Uh, Not Sword and Shield. Let's Go Pikachu and Let's Go Eevee. Whereas, right. Like you don't battle the Pokémon, you just throw Pokéballs at it. You throw the
0: Pokemon. Well, you still and, you still battle other trainers with the Pokémon you've caught. You don't have the wild Pokémon battles. You don't have the wild Pokémon battles. I don't and I see, think in Sword and Shield that's coming back, but I'm not sure. I you know, I don't like that though. I don't like that they took that away because yeah. that was
1: a big component of like why you play, like why you play the slots. Right. It's that random chance. It's right. when you can see the Pokemon on the field. Yeah, it's still random chance, but you know your odds. You know what you're getting into beforehand. You can go in there. And then if you just throw Pokeballs at it, yeah, I guess they can run, but you don't have that chance of knocking them out. Right. You know, you yeah. don't get a chance to fight them and gain XP. You just capture them and gain XP. It's, it's, yeah I know. that is boring to me. That's a boring experience. I like the RNG, I like the random numbers. Generations. Yeah. I like the random battles.
0: Yeah, that's a little too streamlined. It doesn't it's, have enough. It's too meat simple. On the bones. Yeah. Of course that that could be said about almost any mobile game. That's a whole subject in itself.
1: Well, I mean, <laughs> the Switch ones aren't technically a mobile game, even though it is a mobile platform.
0: Yeah, but that it's that's like no, bit, I would yeah. like.
1: Mm-hmm. I I want them to stick to that formula they've had for the last eight generations. Right. Even though they switch it up, it's like. Keep that. That's your core, and you've just taken a big chunk of your core gameplay away. And yes, some people like it, but then there's other people like me that don't, because of that exact reason.
0: It's just, you're stripping away part of that experience. And that's tough, because you're always trying to figure out ways that you could expand your audience, but without losing the audience that you already had. And I mean, Pokemon Go and, and, and Let's Go Eevee, Let's Go Pikachu, are definitely great ways to expand your audience, but... Right. They're not necessarily for your core audience, that's, right? And that's your core audience yeah. will probably still get them because mm-hmm. your core audience are are Pokemon freaks. Oh, They're of course. Get every game you make. Oh yeah. I mean, let's face it. Most of the people I know who are playing Pokemon Go are in their thirties, <laughs> and they are used to playing the Pokemon Go the the Pokemon from like the original Game Boy. Half of the yeah. players are in their thirties, and half of the players are ten. <laughs> that's very much the demographic.
1: You're for Pokemon much.
0: Go. But now Sword and Shield, if they find a marrying quality between being able to to do the kind of the crunchier, the RNG kind of stuff that you that you were talking about, being able to actually do those Pokemon battles and get a little bit deeper in the weeds while still having it more streamlined could be a good solution to try and make everybody somewhat happy with with an experience. But you never know. You know, you never know like when you add something in or you take something away, what people's reaction is going to be and who's going to like it and what demographics going to enjoy it. The other one that I could say is a bad example <laughs> is one that I've complained about before, which of course is Fallout. Uh, yes. You could say Fallout 76 is, is a Fallout game. I mean, Bethesda definitely did. But the reason I think it alienates a lot of people, besides a lot of the technical problems and the ge- general bad ideas that were put into it, is that it doesn't feel like a Fallout experience because so much of the core of what you liked about Fallout is not in there. I don't right. shape I, the world at but all. I think if reasons. they
1: hadn't called it a Fallout game, mm-hmm. they would have been okay. I think if they had said this takes place in the Fallout universe, it yeah. would have been better. But calling it a Fallout yeah. game is not the same
0: thing as taking place in the Fallout universe. It, they they could have thrown a different coat of paint on that and it just created a new game series out of it and people would not have been able to say hey this feels like fallout if you literally just changed the character models and the storyline and everything the 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 literal you know storytelling part of that and the layer of the cosmetic part it would feel like a completely different game because the game doesn't right. function the same way it you you don't have actual influence on the world itself you're not interacting with other characters. I know they're adding that in, but I, I doubt that it's going to be particularly rich. Cause they I can't. don't know how,
1: honestly, we've talked about this before, but I don't know how they're going to suddenly add hundreds of NPCs to a game the, the more there's hard
0: yeah <laughs> yeah there's there's yeah the lore in that is going to be hard i guess their idea is that people are coming back into the wasteland and so now you're meeting people that are but it's like Again, so where where the hell well, have they see, been <laughs> see world of warcraft could pull this off
1: yeah yeah they could pull this off they've done stuff like not adding hundreds of npcs but they've over, like, when a new expansion is coming out, they've had events leading up to it, several patches in advance. Like, when we had the uh, revolution, Darkspear Revolution, mm. that was leading up to Warlords of Draenor. That was yeah. leading up to the Siege of Ogrimmar. Right. And so what they did, instead of just, like, adding in, they added in this these quest lines and these things going on, these events happening in real time. Yeah. And they would advance... Uh, the next patch in advance and it would advance until you get to the, the siege. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do. And they stage it like that. And part of the reason they do that is to keep people playing. Right. Um, because if you give everyone all the content at once, they'll just finish it and be done. Right. But if you <laughs> stagger it like that and make it take a while to come out, mm-hmm. then you've got people playing because, oh, suddenly, cool, I've been doing this and I don't have anything left to do. Oh, now there's new stuff. Cool. I have to go do this now. Yeah, and so like with that, it's you—you you waged a revolution, right? And you just it went from the events of Vol'jin, uh, his attempted assassination, mm-hmm. to him coming back and him going and mm-hmm. leading a revolution, and you being part of it. And then World Warcraft's team is great at this. Yeah, yeah, they've they've had years mm-hmm. of working on this type. They've been doing it since Lich King.
0: The uh, the one other thing that we didn't really talk about is what happens when you don't innovate enough. Because this was the criticism that was really levied against uh, Borderlands. Is that, like, maybe they didn't innovate enough over previous versions of the game, and it feels too similar. So why would I go out and buy another one? Now, that has not affected their sales, for the record. <laughs> their sales have been ridiculous. But I don't know. Like, when I see the different mechanics that they've added in, especially with, like, the different more defined personalities between different gun companies in that game and how they interact, um, having multiple special action skills for the different character classes. I'm like, I, I, I don't know really what kind of other innovation you could put into it, but is that a limitation of, of a game, sometimes that you just can't innovate? I mean, it really depends on the game. I can't think of a specific example of a game, though. Actually, it's yes, again, Monopoly. yeah (laughs) okay monopoly there you go yeah see the problem with a monopoly is yeah literally the only thing you can do to change that game is theme you can only we're gonna take
1: out go we're
0: yeah, yeah absolutely we're gonna take out go and now it's a completely different yeah when you have a game that's so specific like that where it plays a certain way and the rules are very concrete there's not a lot of wiggle room for how you check. Like, are you going to make a Monopoly board that has, like, six different sides instead of four? That's like you- 3D chess. No, that's no,
1: like- no. So what happens is you take out Go, and then what it becomes is you have a finite resource of money.
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That would be interesting, but I feel like yeah. that's just an alternate rule. Well, probably, but
1: it would take, it would it be way. alternating the game. That's true. To a way that would, it's so limited with what you can do with that rule set. Right. That all, all you can really do is change the theme. Right. Or change your luck and chance
0: cards for that. Yeah, you you can change so, the overall theme of it. If we were to
1: say take out Go, so you don't receive $200 when you pass Go, there is no way to gain additional money aside <laughs> from Properties. Yeah. And that's not even then. You still have a finite resource then because you're not gaining any extra money that isn't already in play. Mm -hmm. So then it's just changing bills around, but there's no, it's, you're playing with the finite hand. Yeah. And you're just exchanging until someone loses all theirs and someone gets all the rest. There's no external source of money there, except for the cards that you can draw Mm -hmm. who land on the spaces. Those have a chance of giving you money.
0: Like, my takeaway is, if you have a game and you realize I have to get to version 2 or I have to get to version 3, big thing is to understand what the core of your game is. Whatever the core personality of your game is, what it What your core
1: experience is based on.
0: Right, exactly. Understand what your core experience is. Um, If you have a theme or a world, what is really the core of that? What is the core of that experience that people are looking at? Sometimes feedback from people who play is useful, but, you know, just at least just in your idea, your innovation, what do you really consider the core of this game? The core identity of it. Make sure that that's in place, because sometimes you can take that formula pretty far and wide as long as you maintain that core, but you gotta know what that core is. Right. Um, You can put a Fallout coat of paint on Rust, but it doesn't make it fall out.
1: <laughs> no, it makes it rust, but with a vault suit.
0: Yeah, you have it's rust with a vault suit, and that's I think that not.
1: Should be a mod for the game Rust.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. Well, hey, it would be, it would cost less money too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just make it that way. Man, see, they could have saved themselves so much money if they just licensed a Fallout brand on top of Rust. They wouldn't have had to make the whole game and (laughs) the whole thing. Yeah, understanding your core mechanics, understanding uh, what people play the game for, uh, and then going forward. In that regard, my own personal takeaway, uh, I have not gotten a chance to play it yet, but it should be coming very soon. Uh, For Borderlands 3, everything I saw leading up to it was like, oh yeah, this is the core experience I expect but it's just more of that, and I don't mind that because it's what I expected to play, but it does feel new enough that I feel like there's, there's new meat on the bone for me to enjoy. But the core look and the feel and the characters and the world and the, the looter shooter, the feedback loops that they put in, they didn't lose any of that. They were just like, okay, we're going to go full bore on that. And so for me, that's not a problem. I think it's one of those weird things where it's like you're probably going to like the game if you liked previous games in the series. (laughs) If you didn't like previous games in the series, you're probably not going to like this. And for some people, I understand that that's going to be a problem because how does it introduce new people and how does it give new people an experience? But you also don't want to make people that have played the previous games feel like it's not that game anymore. And that's a really weird balancing act to pull off. All right, Alex. Um, so what version are we on right now of Delve? Uh, what episode is this? This is episode two, thirty uh, something. I don't know. It's we're on, a, we're on version like twenty. We're on version twenty now.
1: That's I pretty great. I don't know. We're on we're on version two hundred thirty. We're on two
0: point three six. We're on Fortnite se- <laughs> season ten. Oh, gosh, I quit. <laughs> Hey, there's a game that doesn't have to worry about reiterating.
1: <laughs> throw no, throwing a bouncy no. house
0: at a pinata, and you're a good. You're you're in good shape, man. I'm not gonna Sounds bash right. Fortnite. That's just uh, no. I played enough of it. I'm like, yeah, this isn't bad, but it ain't my it ain't my steez. My biggest complaint with Fortnite, if I may dive out for one second, is it made every other game think it needs a battle royale mode. Oh God. And it doesn't. You know, that's the entire premise of Fallout 76 right there. No, the entire premise of Fallout 76 legitimately is, hey, look at what all these other people are doing that made money. Let's try doing that. It's a battle royale. Yeah, well, there is a battle royale mode now, so... Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if uh, folks wanted to find out what those previous 20 versions of the show were like, where could they go?
1: (laughs) You can find previous versions of the show over at delvecast.com
0: yes uh, everything that we do is over there i actually last year sometime i did a whole video about fallout where i actually did talk about theme and uh and and touched on some of the stuff that we're talking about here uh but that's on there as well and uh while you are there you can also uh check out our patreon uh please become a patron we would really appreciate that for just a dollar a month you can get the extended episodes uh, and some bonus content that we put out. Uh, sometimes they're little standalone pieces that we were recording, and it just kind of came up. And uh, I think we're going to have one for this, uh, which is which is a, a good little conversation in itself. Uh, so please, it's something. It's something. We don't know what. Uh, but please go out and check that. Uh, thank you to our shiny level patrons, Bonnie Ainsworth and Dominic Perry. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, basically everywhere that you find podcasts. So please rate, review, and subscribe at any place that you get your lovely handcrafted podcasts. We would really appreciate that. And uh, do not forget to check us out on Twitter. I am at Citanium. I am at EXP Limited, and the show is at Delve Podcast. And uh with that being said, I guess we are uh working on creating version twenty-one of Delve. Um something like that. This one we uh we add new hats and new skins. Yes, uh, Nathan likes to shed his from one time to time. Yes, I'm like a snake. I shed the old skin and the new skin is a is a new hue, it's a new color. It's branded for the season. It's a spring outfit. <laughs>
1: Even though it's going to be
0: fall. Uh, but anyway, uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. We will see you on the next episode. Goodbye. Bye. Maybe in like the Forgotten Realms it's spring right now. I guess it could be anything. I think it's eternally spring. I've never played a game where it was winter. That's what we need to do. We need to create a version of uh, Dungeons & Dragons, which is set in, like, the Game of Thrones world, and winter is always coming.
1: (laughs) I mean, there is, in the Forgotten Realms, in Albior there is parts that are covered in snow.
0: Well, like, Spine of the World is pretty much in mountains and stuff, right? Yeah, it's it's
1: all snowy up there.
0: You know what's actually funny is that when I was playing with Dom... He did make a point of talking about, like, that we were in Elliot at the time, and the, the month was, was Elliot, and so it was going to be getting colder, so he was, like, trying to make it very, very relevant that indeed the seasons are changing. Uh, I've never played a game where that was really relevant Yeah. important, I Yeah.
1: guess, but yeah. it all depends. I
0: can't say that it really affected the game all that much, but it was very interesting to think that, indeed, we're getting to a very cool. It, dep-
1: it, it really depends on the timescale that you take in your adventures, too, so.
0: Right. There was a lot of walking for us, uh, so that we were on the road for weeks sometimes. Like, our village was supposed to be up... Not quite at where the spine of the world was, but it was like below where that the, those mountain ranges were. But it was far away. It was it was pretty far up there. And where were we? We were coming from. We were over near like the the Sword Coast. We were down in that area. Uh, so that's a trek on foot uh, to get bit. to get from one place to the next. So that's one of the reasons why we were just keeping track of time and that you know make sure you have a campfire. <laughs> I think that was the big thing because it's cold. It's getting cool.